بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد my dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Inshallah we will be continuing with the hadith that we left on which is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma and uh, we're going to ask our reader Munib to, to read inshallah Tafaddal Okay, so let us quickly recap what we've taken in the last two sessions. Session number one was all about the biography of Al-Hafid Al ibn Hajar rahimahullah, and in it we took the introduction to this book. In the introduction to this book we said this book of piety is a very loose, tra loose translation. But what this book is actually called is Bab al-Zuhd wal-Wara. And we said Zuhd is to abstain from anything that is not beneficial to your Akhirah. And Wara is to abstain from anything that is harmful to your Akhirah. And that is the fundamental thought process we want to develop is that we start looking at all of our actions, all of our statements, and all of our thoughts in, in lieu of you know, what is uh, mandatory, what is recommended, what is permissible, what is disliked, and what is impermissible. And then in the very first hadith, we took the hadith of An-Nu'man ibn Bashir, where the Prophet ﷺ emphasizes this very point that the halal is clear and the haram is clear, and in between them are those matters that are doubtful. Whoever stays away from the doubtful matters has protected his honor and his religion, and whoever falls into them, then he has fallen into something very, very dangerous. Indeed, every king has their sanctuary. The sanctuary of Allah are these impermissible matters. And all of that is contingent upon the state of the heart. So that's what we discussed. And we discussed that that hadith in particular, it develops an approach that Muslims in general should take, and that is to side on the side of caution. When something is doubtful, when you don't feel good about something, side on the side of caution and do the right thing at that time. This hadith also emphasized the importance of learning and what the methodology of learning for the layman, the student of knowledge and the scholar should actually look like. And in last week's class, we further continued with the hadith of Abu Hurairah where the Prophet talks about how the individual that worships gold, silver and luxurious clothing is going to be destroyed. And how that is a natural state of the heart. That mankind has a natural affinity for these things, but it is a desire that has to be fought off. Now what type of desire has to be fought off? When it distracts you from getting closer to Allah or becomes an impediment between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is what you need to fight off. Wealth wouldn't of itself is not a bad thing. But if the heart is corrupt, the wealth will magnify that corruption. If the heart is pure, the wealth will magnify the purity. 
So we established the rule that your Iman always has to be better than your finances. And then two pieces of advice we gave in the conclusion of each halaqahs. Number one, make mulazama of istighfar. Continuously make istighfar from those things that Allah prohibited, from those things that are makruh that we have fallen into, and from those things that are mustahab that we did not do. And if a person were to do that, inshallah, that is the beginning of the pathway to purifying the soul and the heart. And in last week's session, the closing advice, uh, which I did not get to, which should have been continuing the path of knowledge, and that is something that we will conclude with today. Now, we get to the hadith of Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhuma, which is the hadith for today. The Prophet ﷺ in this hadith again is giving advice to a very young man and that is Abdullah bin Umar And he grabs his attention, you know, very specifically. He grabs him from the shoulders, right? The Prophet ﷺ is looking at him and he grabs him from the shoulders very gently to grab his attention. So he grabs him by the shoulders, grabs his attention. And then he reminds him, Kun fi dunya That be in this world as if you are a stranger or abir as-sabil. What do we understand between these two words, Gharib and Abir Sabil? Gharib meaning a stranger, Abir Sabil meaning a traveler and a wayfarer. The Gharib is the individual that wherever he is, he doesn't fit in with the people. Not because he's socially awkward or has social anxiety, but because his morals, his ethics, his values are completely different from the rest of the world. So while everyone else is chasing the dunya, this person is chasing the akhirah. And due to his or her circumstance, they are not able to do anything. They're not able to move or to move to a better location or be somewhere else in better company. So they make the best of their circumstance, but they live in a state of estrangement where they do not fit in. Abir al-Sabil, this is the person that is able to move around and has that flexibility. And this person will only take from this dunya exactly what they need. Like when you go on vacation, how much stuff do you actually buy when you're on vacation? You don't buy a new house, you don't buy new furniture, you don't buy a TV set, you don't buy any of that. You understand that everything that you're getting is rented, everything is going to be returned. So you only take enough food to stay on your vacation because you know you're going somewhere else. Now this example is how the believer is meant to be with the akhirah. We came from the Akhirah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created our souls in the afterlife and eventually they too will return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this was the advice the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is giving to a very young man that before you get older, before you become more successful, learn to detach your heart from this dunya. And that advice is a very prophetic advice that parents need to establish with their children as well. That in terms of the level of luxury we provide, we think we're doing them a favor, but in reality, it's actually an impediment and a hindrance for them. That if they get too accustomed to luxury and they do not get accustomed to a difficult life, then as they get older, they will be raised with a silver spoon in their mouth, as we say. And this will become the baseline that they will become accustomed to. This will be the baseline that they will be accustomed to. Now the beautiful thing about this hadith is that when you look at this statement, be a stranger or a wayfarer, there's no specific advice that you and I can take, right? It's a very generic, general advice. How do we implement something like this? And this is one of the very few instances that you see in Hadith literature where a Sahabi gives commentary on the advice of the Messenger of Allah 
He gives commentary on the advice of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the first piece of advice he gives, if you're awake during the day, do not expect to live at night. And if you're alive at night, do not expect to live during the day. Basically being, be prepared for death at any time. Be prepared for death at any time. You know when, uh, you know it was last year, or actually the beginning of this year in, in January, when um, I was initially teaching this book to, uh, to the mentoring group. And it was at that time uh, when Najib Rahimahullah passed away. And I keep thinking to myself, SubhanAllah, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had like foretold, and his Sahabi, Abdullah ibn radiallahu anhumah, had foretold, you know, be prepared for death at any times. And you think, SubhanAllah, if I say it enough, if I repeat it enough, eventually I will be prepared. But the reality is, you know, maybe it's the weakness of my Iman, maybe it was the not paying attention enough to the hadith of what we were studying. But that death really took me by surprise, subhanAllah. It shook me to my core. Because Najib was younger than me, he was 30 years old. Uh, he was in physically good shape, he had just gotten engaged, was about to get married, he had a job, had a loving family, and all of that was there. Yet one day he goes to work and subhanAllah, Allah decided to, to take his life at that time. But I also believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed all of us to be here today to benefit from that lesson. That regardless of how young you may be, regardless of how healthy may you may be, regardless of how wealthy you may be, regardless of how loving your family and supportive of your family is, when your appointed time comes, there's no escaping it. That is the reality of it. And you have to be prepared for death at any given time. Now that preparation for death it's not about having your shroud ready. It's not about having your graveyard slot ready. It's not about having your will ready. It is about having your actions ready. Have you done enough good deeds so that when you meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, your scale of good deeds outweighs your scale of bad deeds. That is what this hadith is referring to. That if you're alive right now, don't expect to live till the morning. So any good deed that you've wanted to do, Make the intention from it for now, and inshallah Allah gives you tawfiq to do it. And if you're alive tomorrow morning, make the intention to do all the good deeds you possibly can tomorrow. And if you're alive, pray that Allah gives you the tawfiq to do it. Because at the very least, you would have lived through your intentions, that which you could not live through your actions. And that is such an integral part of our faith, that our faith is primarily based upon the intention. The primary focus is on the intention and not on the action itself. So if you make the intention to do something good, and even if you fall short in doing it, Allah writes the good deed for you. You are able to do it, you get extra reward at that time. So it's all about the intention. And think about this simple fundamental question, and that will be like the, the crux of this hadith. That you meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala presents to you this one magnificent deed that you have done that will tip the scales in your favor. Through which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says you have been forgiven. Through which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says you can be entered into paradise. Through which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says your ranks will be raised in paradise and you will be saved from the hellfire. What deed do you want that to be? What deed do you want that to be? Is that going to be sponsoring an orphan for you? Is that going to be praying tahajjud and qiyamul layl for you? 
Is that going to be getting in the Islamic education field and educating the people? What is that deed going to be for you? Now what you need to understand about this is that each and every one of us has a natural inclination towards different types of things. Some of us are social and extroverted. Some of us are introverted and like to isolate ourselves. Some of us like to read. Some of us like to draw art. Some of us like to take care, you know, part in video projects. Others of us like to do poetry. Others of us like to do other things. Whatever our inclinations are, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you those inclinations for a reason. And you may think it's just about having fun and enjoying life, but that's not it. It's about using those tools that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you to get closer to Allah by serving the ummah, by serving humanity, by making this world a better place. That is why you have those passions and those inclinations. And subhanAllah, no matter what it is, trust me, it can be used for good. In fact, it's usually the more abstract things that the greatest amount of good comes from. Something like being good at basketball. You may think like, how can I use that to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Anything that we can do to keep our youth off the streets and from getting involved in criminality and drugs and promiscuity and substance abuse, trust me, it's a service to this ummah. And if it's basketball that will do that, that is a big blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So each and every one of us has that inclination. It's about using that inclination. Then he goes on to say, take from your health before your sickness. And this is a reality. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to get sick, there's multiple wisdoms behind that. One of the wisdoms behind it is that it is a purification of our sins, an atonement for our sins. That when you're sick, you go through hardship, you go through calamity, your sins are being forgiven. So even though we may not have been making istighfar, even though we may not have been doing the good deeds, through our sickness and through our illness, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the ability to have our sins forgiven. The second wisdom behind it, that is directly related to this hadith, is that that too serves as a reminder. That you as an individual will have periods of high motivation and high inspiration and high capability. And you as an individual will have moments that you have low motivation and low capability. And as you get older, you'll notice that things will get in the way. Work gets in the way, family gets in the way, you know, socializing gets in the way. Everything will get in the way. And that is a reminder that you have to prioritize your free time, your healthy time, for that time when you're not going to be able, or you're not going to have the motivation to do so. So those periods of time where you are motivated to do extra, do as much as you can. Recite as much Quran as you can, read as much, uh, you know, do as much dhikr as you can, fast as much as you can, give as much sadaqah as you can. Because a time will come where either you're not motivated or you're not able to. And so you have to save yourself from that. The subtle hidden message in this hadith about this portion is about building that baseline. Each and every one of us has a baseline in terms of the deeds that we do. That on a yearly basis, we'll give $1,000 or $100 in sadaqah. On a yearly basis, we might pray tahajjud, let's just say in the month of Ramadan, but outside of Ramadan, you know, five to 10 times, inshallah. In terms of fasting, we'll fast the month of Ramadan, but outside the month of Ramadan, inshallah, we'll fast Ashura, you know, we'll, we'll fast, um, what's the other one? Arafah, we fast the day of Arafah. Inshallah, most of us will do that. But can we increase on those baselines? That's what this hadith is alluding to, that each and every year that goes by, 
you want to make sure your baseline is increasing. So that if you only fasted like five voluntary fasts this year, 2019, try to aim for seven voluntary fasts. If you only prayed the Hajjud, you know, 10 times outside of Ramadan, try to make it 15 times outside of Ramadan in 2019. If you were only able to finish the Quran once in 2018, try to finish it two times in 2019. It's about building that baseline. And as you build that baseline, that is where your development as a believer will be. And I cannot emphasize how this is not discussed enough. We talk about financial goals, we talk about family goals, we talk about educational goals. Every other goal is discussed except for goals for our faith. And tonight is that night where we focus on our faith. Then what are our religious goals for the up and coming year? What are we trying to achieve? How do we measure success and failure? And when you have no plan, then that is automatic failure. Just living life in limbo, just focus on, you know, as long as I get my five daily prayers done, you know, inshallah I'll be safe because the Bedouin man asked the Messenger of Allah, if I do this, will I be entered into paradise? He says, if he is truthful, then yes. But then my question is, why is our faith the only time we take the approach that if I get a 60, I'm happy? Why is it that that is the only time we take that approach? No one says, as long as I get minimum wage, I will be happy. Right? As long as I get a high school diploma, I will be happy. Every other component and facet of our life has these higher ambitions. Why does that not apply to our faith? So we need to change that tonight, bithinnahi ta'ala. And then the Prophet then Abdullah ibn Amr anhu, he concludes by saying, خُذْ مِنْ حَيَاتِكَ لِمَوْتِكَ That take from your life for your death. Just summarizing everything. That you are transient in this life. You're here for a temporary amount of time and you too eventually are moving on to another destination, which is your final destination. That final destination requires a lot of furnishing. It requires a lot of preparation. It requires a lot of planning. What exactly does that mean? So the hereafter is an eternity. Jannah is eternal. There's no dispute amongst the scholars of Islam about that matter. It is going to last for eternity. And I want you to think about how easily you get bored in this life. You read the same book once, you don't want to read it again. You play the same video game once, maybe you'll play it a second time, but then that's about it. Hanging out with your friends, you know, as you go older, you're changing your friends. Everything is in a constant state of change. But what we fail to realize is that in the hereafter, you will only reap what you plant today. You will only reap that which you plant today. So if you do not plan for tomorrow, you will have no harvest tomorrow. Sufyan Athodi, and I want to share this statement with you. He says, مَنْ لَعِبَ بِعُمْرِهِ ضَيَّعَ عَيَّامَ حِرْثِهِ وَمَنْ ضَيَّعَ عَيَّامَ حِرْثِهِ نَدِمَ عَيَّامَ حَصَائِدِهِ that whoever plays with his life has wasted the days of planting. And whoever wastes the days of planting will regret the day of harvest. Will regret the day of harvest. Meaning that this life is all about planting those seeds for the hereafter. Of whatever you want to see. And this is why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, gives us such specific examples. So for example, the person that prays their 10 or 12 sunnahs per day, they will have a house built for them in Jannah. So you want to go from one house to a different house, you're going to start have to build, building houses in this life. Start praying your sunnah prayers. 
That's the way it works. The Prophet ﷺ tells us that the statements of SubhanAllah, Alhamdulillah, and Allahu Akbar, and La ilaha illallah, they are trees and luscious gardens in the hereafter. So in Jannah, you're going to have these massive plots of land. You're going to want different types of fruits, you're going to want different types of vegetation, different types of scenery. All of that gets planted by the amount of dhikr that you make. There are different levels in Jannah. You want to get to the higher levels, the Prophet ﷺ tells us that people will be raised in ranks in paradise due to how much Quran they used to recite. Ikra wa ratil kama kunta fi dunya. Read and recite just you used to read and recite in the dunya. So the more you do those things, the higher your rank goes. And the more you will get to enjoy the life of the hereafter. That's not to say you're not going to enjoy the life of the hereafter, even if you're the last person to enter into Jannah. You will enjoy it. But your level of enjoyment will be much lower than the person that struggled so hard and then they finally get to their final destination. This is sort of like, has anyone ever done like a, a sugar-free diet here? Anyone done a sugar-free diet? Like going like two weeks without sugar or a month without sugar? I can't be the only one that's done that. Come on. <laughs> Inshallah khair. Anyways, you try something like that. And then the first time you have sugar, actually forget that, that's a bad example. Think about fasting, that's a more pertinent example. Think about fasting. You've been fasting the first day of Ramadan. That first day of Ramadan is always so tough. Because your body is sending you signals, eat, 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 drink, drink, drink. And you just have to refrain from doing it. Then I want you to think that as the Adhan goes off for that very first night, how amazing that sip of water tastes. How amazing that taste of salad that you may not have liked before tastes. That chicken that your wife or your mom made for you that you kept criticizing, how amazing it tastes right now. That struggle and that fruit is the example of this life and the example of Jannah in the hereafter. That there has to be an element of struggle to taste the sweetness in the hereafter. Umar radiallahu anhu he once saw a man eat meat three days in a row. And I share this example intentionally. He once saw a man eat meat three days in a row. On the third day, he asked him, if you're going to indulge in this life to that degree, what have you saved for the hereafter? What have you saved for the hereafter? Right, so eating meat is something permissible. It's not something haram. But Umar radiallahu anhu, in this man, he wanted to establish the frame of mind that if anything is becoming a distraction between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, meaning that this man, he had to go and get the animal, slaughter the animal, cook the meat, that, those, that is all precious time that is going away where he could be worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So he's reminding him that if you're continuously indulging in this life so much, what do you hope to indulge in in the hereafter? What do you hope to indulge in in the hereafter? Wallahu ta'ala ala. Let's do the next hadith, inshallah. Narrated Ibn Umar he who imitates any people is one of them. Abu Dawood reported it, and Ibn Hibban created it as Sahih. Jazakallah khair. Tayyib. What do you understand from this hadith? 
Is this hadith a threat or a glad tiding? The Prophet says, whoever imitates a people will be from them. Is this a threat or a glad tiding? It could be both. Explain, please. If you try to imitate pious, uh, God-fearing people, so you can actually be in their company on the contrary, if you disobey Allah and align yourself with people who are not obeying Allah, you actually can end up. Excellent. And the unfortunate reality is that when this hadith is often quoted, it's often quoted in a very negative sense. It's often told that if you imitate the disbelievers, then you're going to be with them. X, Y, and Z. You imitate, you know, fusak, transgressors, you will be with them. But very rarely is this hadith stated to say that if you imitate righteous and pious people, you will be from them. And that is a balance that our faith has brought about. Right? Our faith is not about scaring people, it's about motivating them. Right? And that motivation can be done through fear and it can do, be done through inspiration. Right? And this hadith is that perfect balance that you have one simple statement that can be taken both ways. It can be used to incite fear, but then it can also be used as motivation and inspiration to become a better person. Right? Imitate righteous people and you will be successful. So now, this hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar anhumah, again the Prophet is advising a young man. And this is like a reoccurring theme. That this concept of asceticism, this concept of piety, it's not something that you develop in your old age. It is a lifelong struggle that has to begin when you're young. Meaning the tarbiyah that we give our children, the tarbiyah that we give to the community children, it has to begin from a very, very young age. Because if you start it later on, it only becomes more difficult. You've already established foundations. You've already established foundations. So now the Prophet ﷺ is getting Abdullah bin Umar to understand that there are good people and there are bad people. And this is the reality of the world. There are going to be good people. There are going to be bad people. Who do you want to be with? Who do you want to be with? Now, this is not in the sense of this dunya. It's rather in the akhirah. That if you understand that good people are going to paradise and bad people are going to the hellfire, you make your decision. That if you want your place in Jannah, you have to keep the company of good people and imitate the good people. Whereas if you want to be in Jahannam, when we seek refuge in that, and from even wanting something like that, then you be with the bad people. But it's also the reverse as well. That if you find yourself hanging around with bad people, being influenced to do bad things, understand that it's not just about, hey, I'm only with them in this life to, you know, have a good time as long as I can pray and do everything else, I'll be okay. No, it's not possible. You will lose parts of your faith and you're not going to realize it. Right? You're always bound to lose parts of your faith if you're hanging around bad company and imitating a wrong crowd. Now, what I want to comment on in this hadith is how is this hadith understood traditionally? How is this hadith understood traditionally? Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he narrates that there is consensus amongst the scholars on the prohibition of imitating the disbelievers in that which is exclusive to their faith or their way of life. Exclusive to their faith or their way of life. Now let us understand what this actually means. Meaning that you will find faiths have a particular style of doing things. And they will have certain attributes that they will have. When you imitate those styles and those attributes for their faith, then that is when it becomes impermissible. 
or if it is something exclusively to their faith, then that too is impermissible. What does that look like? So you've all seen the way priests dress. Priests will wear a black shirt and it has a white collar. The foundational ruling, as we mentioned, in clothing, it is permissible until proven otherwise. Now a Muslim says that, hey, you know what? I like that style, I like the way that looks. Let me get a black shirt with a white collar there. We can confidently say that that is something impermissible in Islam. That is something that is impermissible in Islam. Why? Because it is exclusive to the faith of Christianity. You take another example of clothing, what Buddhists and Hindus wear, right? The orange slash yellow colored toga type clothing. Um, for a Muslim to wear that, default ruling would be permissible, but because we say it's exclusive to their faith, it becomes impermissible. So all of these styles of dress, due to their exclusivity, become impermissible for Muslims to wear, because that means that you no longer identify visibly as a Muslim. And that is inherently what this hadith is referring to. You have to visibly identify as a Muslim, not just in terms of the way you dress, but in terms of the way you act, and the way that you conduct yourselves as well. So if a Muslim abandons saying Assalamu Alaikum, and he replaces it with hi, hello, and good day for the rest of his life. Initiating assalamu alaikum with and of itself is just something sunnah to do. It's not mandatory to initiate the salam. Responding to it is obligatory. But initiating it is just recommended. But if the Muslim makes the conscious decision that you know what? I live in Canada and I only want to say hi, hello, good morning, and good day, and good afternoon, and good evening, and replace the assalamu alaikum with that, then they actually become sinful. Because you've absolutely replaced something that Allah has given you with something that is exclusive to a lifestyle other than your own. Now that doesn't mean that to Muslims you say Assalamu Alaikum and to non-Muslims you say you can't say good day. No, you're perfectly allowed to do that. There's a time and place for everything. We're talking about absolute replacement. Now, where the things are going to get really challenging in our day and age, then as people move away from faith, people are practicing their faith less and less, and they develop you know, a, a neoliberalism, a humanism, that doesn't have set characteristics, that doesn't have set criterion, that does not have set morals and ethics. Implementing this hadith from that perspective is going to become very, very difficult. It is going to become very, very hard to do. And that is why that secondary interpretation, where if you follow the good, then you will still be amongst them, becomes even more important. Because even though we may not be able to always recognize the bad, you will at least be able to recognize the good. You will always have access to scholars, the presence of Muslims, access to masajid insha'Allah. And that is what type of lifestyle you want to try to follow. That is the type of lifestyle you want to follow. From this hadith, we also understand that there are certain characteristics that a believer should not have, even though they're not exclusive to any faith in particular. The example that the Prophet ﷺ gives is the way that we approach food. His advice was, the believer eats from one portion of his stomach, whereas the disbeliever will eat from seven portions. Meaning that the disbeliever is very gluttonous, will have no limits, will have no control. Whereas the believer should have control in terms of how much they are eating. And they're eating just for the sake of survival, just for the sake of getting enough energy to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is not exclusive to any faith, but it's talking about a general concept 
that Islam brings about restraint. Islam brings about work, you know, working on your nafs. Whereas kufr does not bring that about. Kufr does not bring that about. This hadith brings about the fundamental principle that all khair and goodness stems from iman and all evil and shar stems from kufr and disbelief. And that is what we need to understand. That there are two camps that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created. The camp of faith and the camp of disbelief. And you have to be able to identify which one is which. And the more effort you make to be with the believers and dress like the believers and act like the believers, the safer you will be and more likely you will be with them in the hereafter. But the more you interact with quote-unquote the bad kuffar, like not all kuffar are bad, we understand that, but those that promote the vices, that tell you to drink, that have no issue with doing drugs, that promote promiscuity, that promote you know, X, Y, and Z, the more likely you are to be affected by that. The more likely you are to be affected by that. So what we're learning from this portion of the hadith is that the way you dress, the way you speak, the way you interact, the way you worship, all you know, is a part of your Muslim identity. And you have to pay close attention to those things. So as a Muslim man, you cannot wear silk, pure silk. As a Muslim man, you cannot wear gold. These are things that Allah made impermissible. And no matter what happens, you can't change that. That's something you're going to have to refrain from. You know, in this day and age, there's a huge fashion of tattoos. Tattoos are like the in thing. But you have to understand that as a believer, you can't get those. Allah's Messenger وسلم, made them impermissible. And you may think that, hey, what's the big deal of me just doing this one haram? But this hadith serves as that. That if you're identified as a person other than as a believer, you have possibly fallen into what they have fallen into, which is disbelief. Which is disbelief. And this is what Ibn Taymiyyah alludes to, that the best case scenario in this hadith is that you've fallen into something haram. The worst case scenario is that you've actually fallen into disbelief. Like that is the spectrum you're dealing with in this hadith. So that if you fall onto the wrong side of this hadith, where you're following a lifestyle counterintuitive to Islam, Best case scenario, you've fallen into impermissible. Worst case scenario is that you've fallen into disbelief. And that is a very scary reality. And that is what this hadith should uh, make us reflect upon. That when we think of our own lifestyles, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala poses a fundamental question. فَأَيْنَ تَذْهَبُونَ Where are you headed? Where are you going? Your friends will dictate that. The food you eat will dictate that. The way you interact will dictate that. The, the, you know, the, the, the people you socialize and your activities will dictate that. Every single aspect of your life is taking you in a certain direction. You're headed in a certain direction. And if your goal is Jannah, and you keep taking this you know, swerving path that one day you're heading towards Jahannam, the next day you're heading towards Jannah, it's a very long and dangerous route that you're taking because what if you end off on the side of Jahannam and not on the side of Jannah, right? So that is something to contemplate and to think about in this hadith. That is something to contemplate and think about in this hadith. Any questions on the first two hadith we've taken today? Any questions on the first two hadith we've taken today? Anything that isn't clear? Yes. So let's take the, the principle that Ibn Taymiyyah. So the brother's asking a question. He has a, is there a name for this type of hat? No, in English. A hat, just hat in general. 
Yeah. So, so what is it? A golfer's hat. Okay. So he's asking about this hat, and he says, "What is the ruling on wearing this hat?" So Ibn Taymiyyah's rahimahullah's you know defining principle, he said it has to be exclusive to their faith or exclusive to their lifestyle or exclusive to their lifestyle. So does this hat have any religious symbolism behind it that you know of? No, I don't know. Neither do I. Is this something that is exclusive to their lifestyle? Meaning the concept of covering your head, is that something that was only known to the disbelievers? Or is that something that even the believers used to do during the time of the Prophet Right, the Prophet used to wear a turban, he used to wear the, 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 the taqiyah. So clearly it shows that, that it is permissible. And that is the realm that it would stay in. However, if your hat had like a, a cross on it, like we see on football jerseys these days, then that would make it something, at the very least, something that should be refrained from, inshallah. Right, so with no symbolism, with no history behind it, then that is something that, that is fine, inshallah. Yeah? Your point of football jerseys, uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, some teams actually have some teams have um, a picture of a an, a cartoonish devil. Yes. Like famous cubs, like red devil, for example. Yes. It's not an actual imitation of a blaze or shape on the devil version, but it's just like devil shape and holding a stick kind of thing. Right. Uh, the ruling on that. So the brother's question was. On certain sports jerseys, you'll see like an emblem of a, of a devil. What is the ruling on wearing such jerseys? And that, I think, is like, that's even worse than the cross for the believer. Because shaitan is like the epitome of evil, right? So you to celebrate the concept of evil in its purest sense is a, is, a, is a very dangerous thing. And that is, you know, one of the dangerous things in our times where people have belittled the concept of God and belittled the concept of devil to such a degree that we do it in jest and we don't even think about it anymore. So much so we feel so comfortable naming our sports teams you know, on, on these matters. But in reality, those aren't you know, matters to, that should be taken lightly. Like shaitan is meant to be an entity that is hated and is despised due to his evil and due to the evil that he spreads. It's not something that you celebrate um, and you know, name yourself after. Like we would never name ourselves Iblis, right? Inshallah, none of us would name our children Iblis. But why would we feel comfortable enough wearing the, the emblem of Iblis or, or Shaitan uh, on our clothing? What about the uh, parents naming the child Qarun? Qarun. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's <laughs> they probably really disliked their children. That's why they, they did that. So the brother's question was about naming your children Qarun. Uh, who's you know one of the, the stories uh, in the Quran that he loved the dunya so much and loved wealth so much that it basically destroyed him. Uh, so naming your child something like that would not be permissible. I want to stay uh, focused on the hadith. So any questions pertaining to the hadith in particular because then I have a comment inshallah. And the sisters can, can, can ask questions as well. Uh, so if you have a question just raise your hand and uh, you can ask your question inshallah. Sorry, go ahead. I'll come back to you. Yeah, go ahead. What what do you think? What is your opinion on that? Mine is haram. It, it is haram. Why? Why is it haram? Because they wear it as human, they just uh, and, and go, they, the, the the clothes they wear is just like a shaitan. Right. Yeah. 
And the thing is, it becomes so appealing to young children because they're getting free candy and free chocolate. Like, do, like, imitate these bad things and it'll give you free candy and chocolate and reward you by it. And that's why, like, psychologically, the, what it does to a Muslim kid is so traumatizing. Because he'll see, or she will see, all of his non-Muslim friends getting all of this candy by participating in Halloween. Then they will ask their parents that, why is it that they get to, you know, have this candy and chocolate, but I don't. Right, so that is a great question that you're asking uh, about Halloween and what our approach should be. So, our Ummah has taken two approaches to this right now. Or actually three approaches to this. Approach number one is that, you know what, it's only candy and chocolate. It's not that big of a deal if they get dressed up. Let them go and celebrate Halloween. Approach number two is that Halloween is absolutely haram. It has pagan roots to it. It is not something that can be celebrated as believers. And this is just something that we have to tolerate with it. And then you have camp number three, which is more of a recent camp, which is let's bring about Halaloween, which is like, let's bring the kids to the masjid, give them candy instead, give like a lecture on the seerah or something like that. Now, each of these things has different dynamics behind it. And each of these things needs to come in, in a holistic sense. And this is why I can't emphasize that all these issues of identity can't be addressed individually. They have to come as a whole. Like if you want your child to have a strong Muslim identity and you want them to understand that, hey, it's not just about this dunya and Halloween and Christmas and uh, Valentine's Day and all these other celebrations that are really, really, you know, heavily promoted in, in our day and age, we have to make Eid just as competitive. Right? That is part of the discussion that needs to happen. That the only reason days like Halloween become so appealing is due to how unappealing Eid actually is. We'll go out to prayer, we'll have a nice meal, we sleep for the rest of the day, go and have another meal, Eid Mubarak, here's $20, and then that's Eid. Like what type of Eid is that? Right? And I, that's why I think that part of the discussion has to be stepping up the significance of Eid in the lives of our children, making it fun, making it enjoyable, not individually as a family alone, but as a community. Like ideally what I would love to see is that as a community, we gather together, there's bouncy castles, there's you know, other forms of entertainment that are there for the kids, a balloon maker, whatever it is that, that a, kid, a kid wants to see. Or even do like, you know, different houses on that day where they can go to houses and get that candy, right? Whatever it is that a kid desires, you know, create that environment that Eid is special and it is superior to any other day. This is a day that Allah told us to celebrate. We are rewarded by celebrating on that day. Yet that is the one day we choose not to celebrate. Right? Our kids graduate from school, massive celebration. Wedding, massive celebration. Allah tells us to celebrate the day of Eid. Let's just go pray, eat and sleep. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a, a, a psychological issue. So that is the first point I want to make. The second point I want to make is that that question comes in directly related to this hadith. That when you allow your children to participate in such activities as Halloween, you have to ask yourself this question. If I allow them to follow this path, where does this path actually lead? Does it lead to Jannah? If it doesn't, then that's not a path I want them to follow. Right? You don't have to be the most knowledgeable person to know the intricate matters of fiqh to understand that question. Does the Halloween lead to Jannah? It doesn't. It goes against everything that Islam stands for. Everything, right? It is based purely on pagan roots, based on darkness, based on evil, right? And that is something that, that we need to understand. Now this third approach of creating Halaloween 
I'm not sure how I feel about that as well. Like, how far do we take that? Like, are we going to create a halal Christmas, a halal Valentine's Day? Like, where does that actually lead to? And I believe it's better to educate and to discuss than to create compromising alternatives. Because that's what I view this as, as a compromising alternative. I'm not saying that it's haram. I'm saying, yes, it is a better scenario than going trick-or-treating, but it's not as good of a scenario as making our lives, in terms of celebration, Eid-centric, educating our children that, hey, this is why we don't do it, and that, yes, you may not like it right now, but inshallah, in the hereafter, you will be grateful that you didn't partake in it. Right? This is why you see, again, a repetition in all these hadith that the Prophet ﷺ is grabbing these companions while they're young. Like these discussions need to start happening while they're young, not as they get older. And this is all about the lifestyles that you expose them to. So if you expose them to a lifestyle where all these celebrations are glorified, expect your child to, to, to want those things. But if you expect your child, if you teach your children that Jummah is a special day, you dress up nicely, you bring your children to Jummah, and you know there's like a nice meal on Jummah, there's a fun activity on Jummah, they'll grow up appreciating and looking forward to Jummah. It's all about what we do as parents and, this, and what we do as a community to, 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 to culture our children. Wallahu Adam. I want to give the sisters an opportunity. Any questions from the sisters? Any questions from the sisters? Nothing? Then we'll take two last questions and we move on. Question one and question two. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Okay, excellent. And what is your question? My question is uh, regarding of your discussion. So I mean, this kind of events five, three years ago. So in the Halloween day. So they're adding something in the religion. They said that they, people are gathering, kids are gathering, that you know, giving the candy or something like that. If you are the sheikh, I don't want to say the name. Is <coughs> it prominent sheikh in the Calgary? And he says people kids are going outside, you know, collecting the candy is not good. So <coughs> we have this a school festival. We don't have tea. We have that Idul Adha. They have Christmas, and they have also uh, Easter. We have Idul Fitr. And they have Halloween. We don't have anything. So we call it as a. Halloween party, you know. <coughs> the Santa Claus, you are making another thing in the day, it is not a haram or peda. He said, no, why do you do the Muazib Najjawal or do that, Yemen? And the person asked so <coughs> how do, how to educate the people? He said, I will follow the Quran and Sunnah. And also he said, if you don't find anything Quran and Sunnah, what is the thing? He said, I will, <coughs> if, you know, Make it the head. And that's why we are using my knowledge. So I commented on that already, yeah, right? And, and, and that's fine. I've commented on, and on it already. I believe it comes from a very good place where they want to provide an alternative. So the brother's question, for those of you that didn't hear it, is just further asking inquiry, you know, this combination between. Uh, you know, or Halloween, where you bring people to the masjid and give them candy and stuff like that. Is that something that should actually be done? And I would say I'm not going to comment on the permissibility of, or impermissibility of it. What I will comment on, it is definitely not the best approach. It is definitely not the best approach. 
That is what I will say about that. Now to answer this brother's question, his question was on birthdays. His question was on birthdays. Now that becomes, uh, I think to a lesser degree uh, of an evil than something like Halloween, just based upon the fact that it doesn't have the paganistic roots that I know of. It doesn't have the paganistic roots that I know of. Inshallah, if someone can find concrete evidence to prove otherwise, I would love to, to see something like that. So something that, like that, I would say, takes a very um, immature approach to celebration. Let me explain why. When you celebrate, there has to be a cause of celebration. And that is what we learn in Islam. That you fast the month of Ramadan, you obeyed Allah, worshipped Allah, you celebrate. You went for Hajj, or your community went for Hajj, or the Ummah went for Hajj, Thereafter, you celebrate Hajj and the first 10 days of Dhul Hijjah and the day of Arafah. Everyone is a part of celebration because an act of ibadah took place, something good took place in this world. Whereas, when you're celebrating one year having gone by, approach this logically from a Muslim's mind. Is that something you really celebrate? Like if you reframe this question, you're getting closer to death. Will you be celebrating that? Answer that logically. Because that's literally what you're doing. So what I would say is, looking at this concept of birthdays, again, focusing on celebrating life. You've been alive for one more year. You haven't died. I don't know how I feel about that. But what I can say again, is let us take these principles from Islam. That when you do something good, you should celebrate. So your child memorized one juz of the Quran, memorizes 10 surahs, memorizes X, Y, and Z. You choose as a parent. Celebrate that in the house. Make it a party. Make it a festivity. Right? Your child prays their sunnah prayers. The whole entire day, they prayed all of their sunnah prayers. Celebrate that day. Right? Your child does something good. They went and gave an act of charity, even though they weren't told to do that. They stood up for a child that was weak and oppressed. Celebrate those things. Celebrate achievements. Don't just be like a blind sheep that just follows the people celebrating things that don't even make sense. Like I said, even if you take away the religious concept away, approach this logically. Would any of you celebrate getting closer to death? None of us would do that. No one in the right mind would celebrate, closer, get, celebrate getting closer to death. But we do it because that is what society tells us to do and there's no critical analysis of what is the wisdom behind that. So now we get to our Islamic rules where Islam teaches us to celebrate achievements. Let us focus on celebrating those achievements. Your children want to feel special. They should be made to feel special. But based upon their achievements. Now do not con confuse unconditional love with celebration. Your child deserves unconditional love. Whether they achieve things or not, you as a parent have to love them. You can't show them favoring love only when they commit achievements. But in terms of celebrations, this is something that you can tell them. That when you do good, you get rewarded. This is what Allah teaches us in the Quran. You do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you get punished. That is the way that it works. And that's what I'll say about that. Wallahu Adam. Next hadith, inshaAllah. <laughs> one day I was riding behind the Prophet and he said, 
Young man, be mindful of Allah and He will protect you. Be mindful of Allah and He will find Him before you. When you ask for anything, ask it from Allah. And if you seek help, seek help from Allah. Report that Tirmidhi will verify it as Hassan and Sahih. Jazakallah khair. So here we have the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. Again, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is grabbing a young adolescent child, Ya Ghulam. Ghulam in the Arabic language refers to a child that has just started eating to the age of seven. To the age of seven. If you use the term Ghulam after that, then it is used as something that is metaphorical and not something that is taken literally. Al-Hafid ibn Hajar rahimahullah comments by saying, that he is approximately 10 years old when the Prophet ﷺ is giving him this hadith. The context of this hadith, he was riding on the same beast as the Messenger of Allah ﷺ. So the same camel with him. And then the Prophet ﷺ, you know, gives him this piece of advice. So understand what's happening. Can you imagine for a young child at that time, and I'll give you like a modern day equivalent, the greatest celebrity in the town the most important person in the town, the most famous person in the town that everyone looks up to. And they get to ride the riding beast with that person, meaning they get to ride in the limo with that person. And when they're with this person, this person just doesn't sit silently, they actively make an effort to give this person advice. And that is what the Prophet ﷺ did. So he made him seem favored, made him feel special, made him you know, be close to the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, and now he's giving him this advice. So with Abdullah ibn Umar he grabbed him by the shoulders just to, to wake him up a little bit. But here he's made him feel special, and now he's giving him this advice. And what a powerful advice it was. That preserve and protect the boundaries and sanctuaries of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you will find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there. You will find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there. What exactly does this mean? When a person strives for righteousness, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors and protects righteousness. When a person strives for righteousness, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors and protects righteousness. What exactly does that mean though? I want you to take an example of two young men going to school over here. Both of these young men, you know, in their public life, act the same. They will go to Jummah prayers, they'll make an effort to pray five times a day, they will fast in the Ramadan, and they will do publicly pretty much the same deeds. One of them ends up falling into zina, and one of them is protected from zina. What is the distinguishing factor? What is the distinguishing factor? The distinguishing factor is that one of them in their private lives was doing something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to protect. And thus they were protected from zina. What is the evidence for that? When you look at Surah Yusuf, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He talks about the story of Yusuf and He says, وَلَقَدْ هَمَّتْ بِهِ that she, meaning the wife of Al-Aziz, heavily desired Yusuf. And Yusuf would have definitely heavily desired the wife of Al-Aziz. That had it not been for the fact that he saw the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala go on to say next? 
وَكَذَلِكَ نَصْرِفْ عَنْهُ السُّوءُ وَالْفَحْشَاءُ إِنَّهُ كَانَ مِنْ عِبَادِنَا الْمُخْلَصِينَ And thus we averted from him evil and lewdness. He was surely from our slaves that was selected and saved. So when you look at this, Yusuf is a very good-looking man. He has the ability to commit zina. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't allow him to desire it. Did not allow him to desire it because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala constantly kept putting these signs in front of him. These signs can be of various things. But the greatest of signs is the attentive heart. Is the attentive heart. And you'll notice that you find this in the story of Yusuf time and time again. That his natural reaction when he's asked, hey, is this something you'd want to do? Ma'adhallah. I seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from that. That I'd rather be in prison than do something like this. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he constantly turned to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And throughout this journey, he's just appreciative of everything Allah has given him, even the hardships. And he leaves, you know, his, his, like basically his leaving dua is that, Oh Allah, you've had multiple favors upon me. The only thing I ask of you now is let me die as a Muslim and unite me with the righteous people. That's all he's asking for at the end of the surah. But the point we're trying to get at over here is this concept of being protected. It is all about your private life. It is all about your private life. So when we're talking about protecting the boundaries and sanctuaries of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's not about the public sphere. Everyone can be righteous in public. The question is, how do we become righteous in private? How do we become righteous in private? And this is what the Prophet ﷺ is trying to instill in Abdullah bin Abbas In public the people will see you and therefore you will act righteous. In private you have to understand that even when no one else sees you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala surely is. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala surely is. And you develop this frame of mind. That think about when you were a student, you're writing an exam, the invigilator walks by you. What happens? Even when you're not cheating, even when you're not doing anything wrong, you'll straighten up your back and pretend like you're writing something down just because it doesn't want to seem as if you're cheating, even though you didn't do anything wrong. Right? As you're driving, you could be driving on the speed limit, you see a cop car, what happens? You start going below the speed limit because you don't want to do anything wrong. That is what taqwa looks like. That even though the people may not be able to see you, Allah is watching you. Straighten yourself up, fix yourself up. Don't get close to that boundary. That you know the speed limit 60, you see that cop, you're going to be driving 55. Because you don't want to give that cop an opportunity to pull you over. Similarly with Allah, Allah has set the boundaries of haram. There's that makruh boundary close to it. Don't even get close to the makruh. Stay away from it. And that is how you protect yourself. Conducting your private life is such an important discussion to have. And when I think about the anxiety, the depression that people develop in this day and age that is not you know, chemically related to the, the chemicals in our mind, I believe a lot of that stems from the way we conduct our private lives. That if we lived a life of taqwa, if we lived a life for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if we lived a life where we wouldn't do things that would make us feel guilty later on, in essence, it would have a huge, huge impact on our psyche and our emotional well-being. Because you'll notice that one of the greatest, you know, I guess, catalysts for anxiety and depression 
is guilt. You don't do anything wrong, you won't have anything to feel guilty about. That is what this is coming to. Now how do we understand this on a practical level? The scholars of the past would recommend actually documenting the deeds that you do. Your good deeds and your bad deeds. See how many of them are done publicly and see how many of them are done privately. And you'll notice that the scale for the average person, a lot of our good deeds are done in public, a lot of our bad deeds are done in private. We want to try to work on that scale to such a degree that we do more good deeds in private than we do in public. Do more good deeds in private than you do in public and you work on eliminating the bad deeds altogether. And that if you focus on keeping yourself busy with good deeds, finding an opportunity to do a bad deed will be very difficult. If you focus yourself keeping busy on doing good deeds, finding an opportunity to do bad deeds will be very, very difficult. And this again talks about the goals and the ambitions that we have as believers. What are we working towards? What are we aiming towards? And you'll notice that the luxuries of the hereafter are prepared for those individuals that have succeeded in working on their private lives. Have succeeded in working on their private lives. If you look at Surah Al-Sajdah, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala talks about a, a group of people that He has prepared for them everything that they could desire and that which no eye has seen. Why? Because they used to wake up in the middle of the night and pray and no one else would see them and no one else would hear them. And this is just between them and Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. So those greater luxuries in the hereafter are not in the public sphere, they're in the private sphere. Now let us make sure that we understand this correctly. There are certain deeds that have to be done in public. Like coming to the masjid for men, it is highly encouraged to come to the masjid as much as you possibly can to pray your fard prayers. But your sunnah prayers, that is what you pray at home. Your nafal prayers, you pray at home. That is what you aim to strive for. So a person should not take this concept that, hey, I want to do as many private deeds as I can, uh, sorry, as many deeds as I can privately, and take something that is meant to be done in public, and then do it private based upon that. That's not how this hadith is interpreted. There are certain things you have to do in public. So praying in jama'ah is done in publicly, and that there's a virtue in that. Whereas the non-fard prayers, you pray privately, right? In terms of zakat, zakat, there has to be a physical element to it. Either you're giving it directly to the poor people yourself, or you're giving it to an individual that will give it to poor people, right? And it's actually encouraged to give it directly to the poor people without that intermediary. Why? Because when you give that zakat to another individual, it's showing them that you love them, and that you have a concern for them, and that you want uh, their well-being. So do not confuse that which is meant to be done publicly and try to think that I can do it privately. No. There are certain deeds that should be done publicly and strive as much as you can to do them publicly. And everything else, try to do in private. Everything else, try to do in private. Try to keep those deeds that are so secret that no one else knows about other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what we learn about the, from the hadith of the men in the three cave. Right? One of them used to feed his parents before he fed his own family. Another one, you know, protected himself from falling into adultery. Another one was honest in his business transactions. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered their du'as because no one knew about those deeds except them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's telling him that if you work on your private life, 
Allah will start showing you signs everywhere you go. You will live a life as if you are seeing with the eyes that Allah has given you. And you will hear what Allah wants you to hear. And you will experience what Allah wants you to experience. But only if you work on your private life. Only if you work on your private life. Then he goes on to say that if you ask, ask of Allah. And this is such a fundamental concept that when we're asking people for something, does your heart become dependent on them? Does your heart start having expectations from them? And then when they don't deliver, you get disappointed. The problem in that situation and in that scenario is your expectations. And that is why the Messenger of Allah is saying, don't have expectations from any of Allah's creation. Don't have expectations from anyone. If you're going to ask for something, ask from Allah first. Allah should be the first point of contact. Then ask His creation. And in that situation, whatever happens is in your best interests. But if you don't ask for Allah first, and you go directly to the creation, your heart will naturally become attached to the creation, which will build higher expectations, which will lead to greater disappointment, and it becomes a vicious cycle. Till you learn, you can only depend on Allah in order to not be disappointed. You can only depend upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to not be disappointed. And then the, the last part of the hadith uh, is very similar as well. In terms of asking for help. In terms of asking for help, ask help from Allah and you will never be disappointed. What I, I want to mention over here, that what are the things you're meant to ask Allah for help in? And this is very, it's very important to contextualize this hadith with other hadith. And that is the hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal anhu, which I think is a very good uh, point to conclude on. Where the Prophet wasallam one day grabbed Mu'adh ibn Jabal and he tells him, Oh Mu'adh, I love you for the sake of Allah. I will teach you some words that you should say at the end of every salah. And what was the dua that he taught him to say? Allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husni ibadatik. That, O oh Allah, aid me in remembering you, in thanking you, and perfection and perfecting my worship of you. Perfecting my worship of you. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah Fatiha. Iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'een. That it is only you that we worship and only you that we seek assistance from. Ibadah and isti'ana. Worshipping Allah and seeking help are brought together. Because the act that you will need the greatest amount of help in is in worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Because that is your purpose of creation. And your purpose of creation will come with difficulties. It will come with challenges. And that is why you have to continuously ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that help and that support. Now this is why you see the likes of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu in simple things that if his whip would fall down, he would ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to help him retrieve it first before he would ask any of the creation to pick it up. He would rather get off his horse, pick it up himself, than to ask someone else to do it. Because he didn't want his heart to get attached to the creation. A shoelace breaks, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to replace it rather than asking someone else to do it. Why? Because it develops a stronger relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and does not allow you to set up false expectations of creation. That's what we want to avoid. So whatever you're able to do for yourself, ask for Allah's help and do it for yourself. Whatever you're not able to do, ask for Allah's help first and then ask the help of the creation. And then whatever the outcome of that scenario is, will be in your best interest. Bidhinlahi ta'ala. So we did not get to, to finish the, 
the whole bab and that is something that we had decided on last week because we wanted to discuss these matters in detail what I want to conclude with is because this is the the end of my series there will be a new series starting next week with Sheikh Hassan inshallah um, is the, the the following points the following points um, actually the only let me share the other news first the other news that I'll share is inshallah for those of you that are interested on finishing this book there are about six hadith left We'll probably do two or three Wednesdays at the uh, downtown uh, Musalla, inshallah. So 1009 7th Avenue, we'll advertise it and we'll probably do the rest over there on Wednesday nights, inshallah, for those of you that want to continue it. Um, and those two will be recorded and those two will be uploaded. But as you can see, the interaction in person is very different than the interaction that you get behind a screen. So those of you that are able to, I encourage all of you to continue to engage with these prophetic traditions. Um, particularly those that will deal in spirituality and help us getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In terms of concluding remarks, mulazama of istighfar, continuously making istighfar intentionally, right? Try to think of the sins that you've committed. Try to think of the makruh things that you've done. Try to think of those recommended things that you did not do and continuously seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for those things. That is the level of righteousness that we should be striving for. Number two, the pursuit of knowledge. I cannot emphasize enough how much that is mandatory upon the believer. That the only way you will be able to see life with clarity is with knowledge. Is with knowledge. If you do not have knowledge, you're considered blind. You're considered blind if you do not have knowledge. The only way to get out of that blindness is through seeking knowledge. So what does that look like for you on a practical level? What that looks like for you on a practical level is going through the Qur'an with translation. Being familiar with the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What that looks like is going through prophetic tradition while understanding it. Something as simple as Imam Nawi's 40 hadith. Go through that. You finish that, go through Riyadh al-Salihin. And keep going through them, keep going through them. Learning, understanding, implementing. Learning, understanding, implementing. That is the cycle you want to keep going through. And the more you hold on to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, the more you're holding on to the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that I'm leaving you behind two things. If you don't hold on to them, you will never go astray. So if you really want to protect your faith, you have to have a connection to the sources of faith, which are the Qur'an and the Sunnah. The third thing I will emphasize is looking at your companionship and looking at your friends and the people that you hang around with. Because that will play a huge impact on your morality, on your ethics, your motivation and enthusiasm in getting closer to Allah. If your friends are constantly reminding you to do bad, it is such a struggle to be good amongst them. But if your friends are of such a degree that everyone is praying their sunnah prayers at salah time, you're going to be the black sheep if you don't pray your sunnah prayers. And that's fine. It may be difficult the first couple of times, you know, getting used to it. But eventually you learn how to pray your sunnah prayers. You learn to enjoy your sunnah prayers. And that is the companionship you want to try to achieve. So this concept of spirituality, there is a very social component to it. We were created to be social beings, but be social with the right people. Don't be social with the wrong people. And those are the three pieces of advice uh, I wanted to focus on. And I'll conclude with the dua of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqa, wa arzuqna al-tiba'ah, wa arina al-batila batilan, wa arzuqna al-jtinaabah, Allahumma ameen. والله تعالى اعلم وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك اشهد ان لا اله الا انت استغفرك واتوب اليك والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته